Welcome to another inspirational episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. It's very, very possible to just, in most cases, call up people and, and ask them if it's possible to, to take a lesson. Even, you know, in the big orchestras, to ask somebody if they, I mean, it's a compliment to be asked. If I was going to advise somebody on how to get a recording contract, I would say build your live audience because that's what's going to sell your band to a recording company. That's where a lot of people are making their money these days is not recordings so much as touring. Monetizing Your Creativity asks the question, what does it take to earn a living with your creative talents? You know, you don't get any, there's nothing for free in life. If someone's going to give you a bunch of money to make records, then you have to answer to them creatively and otherwise. And, you know, we've, we've struggled for this long. Let's just keep on going. It's getting easier, slowly but surely. I have faith because I see the reactions of the fans, you know, and that's what keeps me thinking, I can do this on my own. I don't have to answer to anyone else so that I can get their money. We focus on the success principles common to all disciplines by interviewing producers, directors, writers, actors, cinematographers, music composers, animators, designers, and much, much more. Learn how to create your own path to success. Let's roll. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Monetizing Your Creativity. I'm your host, Marvin Polis, and joining me is your co-host, Fred Keating. Hello, Marvin. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another one of our themed episodes where we talk to several people on the same topic. Now, the topic of this episode, if you haven't already guessed it from the opening excerpts, the business of music. Well, like we've always said, Fred, when most creative people think about show business, they think more about the show than the business. And it's hard to have one without the other. No one expects creative artists to master all of the business crafts, such as accounting or the legal skills to read and interpret a contract or the technical logistics of any particular performance. But since those are all essential requirements for success, the artist has to find trustworthy people who have those skills so they can concentrate, they meaning the artists, can concentrate on their own special skills of musical composition and performance. While there are many episodes in our podcast already featuring great musicians sharing their advice with us, and you, our listeners, we've chosen three individuals for this episode who have very interesting and different approaches to a career in music, but all very successful in their own particular career paths. So Fred, tell us about your friend, Mark Olson. Well, I've had the pleasure of spending time with Mark on his farm in France and talk about a home filled with music and musical instruments. And that's why I enjoyed the time that you and I spent with him in the interview, getting the backstory and an idea of how a life in music can literally take you around the world. Okay, let's listen to Mark Olson's story. I play in the Luxembourg Philharmonic Orchestra, and I've been there 31 years now. Oh my goodness, that's a long gig. Yes, it is. <laughs> so how's an American boy from the Midwest end up spending three decades in an international orchestra in Europe? It's a long road. I was in New York City. Actually, it was the Rye Orchestra, the radio television station from Torino, Italy, was looking for a horn player. They came to New York City. And I auditioned for that orchestra and got the job. And I went there in 1984, January 8, 84, 
to play in the Rye Orchestra. And then after that, I knew that at that time in this orchestra, to be a tenured player, you had to be an Italian. I knew that my days were numbered there. So I started looking around, managed to find this orchestra advertised. And so I went and took the audition and won the job. And I've been here ever since. Mark, what made you think back in the day that you could turn playing the horn into a career back when everybody else around you is learning to play in the high school band just for credits. Well, I think the really key event that happened to me was I went to Interlochen Music Camp for the two-week All-State Michigan program. And while there, they asked me if I would like to audition for the Interlochen Arts Academy, which is the year-round school because they had lost their first horn player and would I be interested in coming to the school? And I said, great. And so I auditioned for them and they said, yes, please come to the Interlochen Arts Academy. And I did that. And that was clearly the key event that <laughs> made it uh, evident that the horn was going to be important in my life. I have to give, <laughs> give my dad credit for being the taxi driver for many years, driving around to different uh, youth symphonies all over the place. They were always extremely supportive. And also just going to Interlochen Arts Academy, which is a very expensive school, because of the school needed me or wanted me, that made it was possible. And my parents agreed that it would be possible for me to go there. What about other people in your sphere of influence, Mark? Did you hear from them that, hey, Mark, you must be crazy. You can't earn a living playing music, and you certainly can't earn a living playing horn. Right. No, I definitely heard that uh, over and over and over again. I just said that I love doing this, and um, I'm going to try it, um, see how far I can go. Even in university, they encouraged you to have a fallback in case it doesn't work, you know, maybe get an education degree. And I said, no, if I'm going to fall, it's going to be on my face. After graduating from University of Michigan, I went out to L.A. to be a freelance musician. I liked LA and I studied with Vincent DeRosa there, so I was continuing my education in that way. He was a studio musician, right? That's right, really the, the top studio horn player in LA. And so how does a young fellow like you meet up with a pro like him and convince him to give you lessons? In most cases, I've studied with people. You just you just call them up and say, is it possible to get a lesson with you? And uh, more than likely, they'll say yes. You know, this has been a recurring theme in our podcast is that people actually want to be mentors. All you need to do is ask. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've had many different teachers after university. And it's just a question of saying, you know, is it possible to get a lesson with you? And then they'll hear you and uh, you say, maybe we'll have another lesson. Or maybe sometimes it was just a one-shot deal where you went and they listened to you and they gave you tips of what you should do better and so forth. It's very, very possible to just, um, in most cases, call up people and, and ask them if it's possible to, to take a lesson. I think most musicians are open to that, even you know, in the big orchestras, to ask somebody if they... I mean, it's a compliment to be asked. So, you know, many of them say, no, I simply don't have the time to do that. But uh, it did work for me. I, I studied with many people, just simply called them up. And then with Vincent Rosa, I just called him up. And then we had lessons for a better part of a year. And he was a terrific teacher. I think that coming up through school and from the very beginning of playing the horn, I tried to play as much as possible with as many types of groups as I could get into. And, you know, to finally come to a point where people are paying you to do that. It's a wonderful transition. The horn has been a ticket <laughs> 
to, uh, you know, I lived in California, I lived in New York City, I lived in Italy, I've been all over Europe. It has been a wonderful ticket to see a lot of the world. Looking for some other tips now with respect to important aspects of auditioning, again, regardless of what the creative discipline is. One of the things that you mentioned, for instance, was the need to be prepared. What are some of the other things that you think are really important? With auditioning, I think it's important to be able to stay focused. There's always a lot of people showing off their high notes and you know playing through the excerpts in the practice rooms and you just have to focus on what you're doing and try to screen all that out or people coming up and wanting to have conversations with you you just have to concentrate on what you're going to do <laughs> that's it you know just try to screen all that out that that's not always easy obviously I love that idea that the horn has been a wonderful ticket that's taken Mark all around the world. And I liked hearing that even the best in any kind of art form or business is often more willing to share information with you or more amenable to mentor you than you might think. Sometimes all you have to do is ask. Well, I think you'd likely need to be pretty darn good already when you approach a mentor at the top of his or her game. or. As Mark mentioned, if the top talent is just too busy to give time or lessons to you, he or she may still possibly refer you to someone else who can assist. It's all about expanding your personal and professional network. Well, our next guest sounds like just that kind of guy. Pat O'Connell is an experienced musician that considers the teaching or learning experience a two-way street. Pat has an interesting take on the old George Bernard Shaw quote, those who can do, those who can't teach. And that would be, think again. Here's Pat O'Connell's philosophy. What I would tell people and what I just got finished telling people, I was, uh, I was subbing a uh, Footloose production at a college and talking to the younger musicians at the time on the breaks. And I advised them to start teaching because most professional players are still taking and giving lessons. Don't look upon teaching as something that, you know, last-ditch effort. No, do it as soon as possible. Get that steady stream of income coming in. Then you have more choices as far as the actual gigs go. I have a wonderful poster in my studio that the top word says teach, and then there's like a mirror image underneath it, uh, very cleverly graphic, that says learn. Teach, learn. And truer words were never spoken. When I teach... I not only learn something about myself, but the students can teach me things that I need to know also. I know in the past, Pat, you were represented by an agency that, in fact, found you work, found you gigs in a variety of different musical genres because they appreciated your ability to shift from country and western to rock and roll to jazz to to the big band sound. Do those traditional relationships between musical artists and agency helping them to find work still exist? Oh yes, there are still those kind of what I call society band leaders that work, you know, in San Francisco there's very wealthy people there and on the peninsula in the Silicon Valley. So there's some money to be made and there's big parties to be thrown and there are still musicians making quite a bit of their income on those kind of what we call casual engagements. If I was going to advise somebody on how to get a recording contract, I would say, 
build your live audience. Go out there and play gigs and build your live audience because that's what's going to sell your band to a recording company. And that's where a lot of people are making their money these days is not recordings so much as touring and then maybe selling their recordings at their gigs. And that's what a lot of the uh, people that are not signed up do. So that's the first thing to do is to get a good band, get some good material, get out there, play for an audience, get them to sign on to your Facebook page or your mailing list or whatever. And then when it gets big enough, either the recording companies can come to you and say, hey, we noticed that you're big time, or you can go to them and say, here's what we have to offer. But just recording a song and saying, here, Warner Brothers, put this out there, they're, they're not even going to listen to it. No doubt about it. It can be difficult to carve out a career for oneself in music. The business side of the business of music has shifted considerably. Aspects of creative careers that haven't changed include the importance of resilience and relationships. Well, now let's hear from another great musician. Marv, you positioned yourself at the famous Glass Pyramids in Edmonton, Canada, right at the edge of the Edmonton Folk Music Festival, and sat down with Nashville-based Lyra Lynn, who many people know from her work in music. Yes, and many more know about Lyra and her music from her appearances as the singer in HBO's series True Detective. Lyra is a perfect example of an artist starting small, building an audience and relationships, and then jumping when an opportunity presents itself. And then, well, we'll let her tell the story. And I'm sitting in a park with recording artist Lyra Lynn. She's been performing here at the festival. Welcome, Lyra. Thank you. Lyra, tell me about your music. It's a, such a mixture of styles. That's one thing I think is most characteristic of it. I grew up listening to old country music, classic rock, a little bit of the Beatles, Joni Mitchell, and all of these things have melded into one style, I think, that is mine, I hope. <laughs> No, you're actually from Texas, right? I was born in Houston, Texas, yeah. Do you manage your career from there? No, I moved to Georgia, uh, well, made my way to Georgia via Louisiana, grew up in Georgia, but now I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Tell us the story about how you got your career started. I started in Athens, Georgia, which is a very liberal college town, about an hour and a half east of Atlanta, Georgia, and I went to college there and also worked as a bartender and waitress putting myself through school and you know I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to do music but my my parents and my family stressed that a college education was very important in the event that music failed. The good old backup plan. Yes, the plan B as we call it. So I have a, a degree in anthropology as my plan B. Not sure what I was going to do with that exactly but it was incredibly inspiring and also widened my perspective greatly so I'm grateful for it and I think it has contributed a lot to songwriting but I started playing there in Athens, Georgia with a couple of bands that I had put together and it took a few years to learn to write songs and learn how to be on stage and Athens is a really great place for that. Eventually I got a booking agent and a manager and a band and started touring around and eventually made my way to Nashville and you know it's just uh, daily go get it. Now you worked as an opening act for a number of bands including Katie Lang is that correct? Yes Katie Lang from Canada from Consort. <laughs> Tell us that story. I remember when the booking agent called and said you have an opening gig with Katie Lang and I thought what oh my god this is amazing Katie Lang she's an incredible singer 
it was really great to be in her presence, to be in the presence of her band and her whole crew. Everyone was very professional, and I hadn't been around that level of professionalism in my career yet. So for me, Katie kind of set the bar. She set the standard for what I want to model my business after, what I want my crew to look like, my band, my stage presence, you know, my artistic integrity. She's amazing. And I understand that you eventually collaborated with T-Bone Burnett, and that launched you into a television series on HBO. Tell us about all of this. Yes, uh, T-Bone was interested in using a song of mine from an EP that I self-released, because I'm an independent artist. And we had launched to discuss that, and he... uh, asked if I had any interest in writing songs with him for the television series, to which, of course, I responded, yes, an emphatic yes. And uh, he flew me to Los Angeles, and we wrote very quickly together. We wrote and recorded four songs in a day or something crazy like that and played the music for the writer of the show, the producer, and they were into it. And T-Bone said, well, how about, you know, Lyra's the... the actress, you know, the girl singing in the bar. And they said, mm, okay, okay. The rest is history. And of course, we're talking about True Detective on HBO. Tell us how that really worked out for you, and what's it like acting? You know, what an odd and lucky way to reach an audience through that show, and not through doing some kind of sellout kind of music, you know, really thought-provoking, dark, deep music. I can't express how grateful I am for the opportunity. I found an audience for my music that I I don't know that I would have ever found otherwise because these days you go through the main channels of radio and TV and it's it's like pop music and it's upbeat and it's major keys and things like this so to be able to write and perform some really art artsy kind of music and reach that many people is such a rare and extraordinary opportunity. Now how does HBO feel about that style of music and as well as the producers of the program True Detective? I think they really wanted us to create music that helped set the tone for the show. That music was not music that I had written previously, it was music that was written for that character in the bar, for the show. The whole show was dark and and everyone was sort of down and out and the music had to reflect that. They they seemed to really love it. I mean, Nick Pizzolatto, the writer for True Detective, seemed like he he was really moved by it. Now you mentioned that T-Bone Burnett helped you get your foot in the door there. Is there anything else to the story that really would be a lesson learned with respect to getting noticed in the television industry for those musicians, for those performers who might want to follow your path? I think the most important thing is that you do what's true to you and the people will find you. The opportunities will find you. As soon as you try and follow some other footsteps of popular artists or something, you know, people see right through that. You got to do what's true to you and the most important thing for an artist is to be compelling. T-Bone wanted to work with me because I was doing what I was doing and he found it compelling. And I guess I would suggest that relationships are pretty important too. The relationship with T-Bone as well as the relationship with the producers and, and perhaps the directors of the series True Detective. Relationships are important, yes. But I think that your art speaks for itself. And if you are true to yourself and you do what you do and you stick to your guns, they will trust you based on that. Great. Now let's talk about your third album. I guess you've just released a third album. Tell us about this. 
It's called Resistor. It was recorded in Nashville with my collaborator, Joshua Grange. He's an amazing multi-instrumentalist, amazing engineer in the studio, amazing songwriter. I, I feel like he really understands my sense of delivery style. You know, there's a certain subtlety to it. It's restrained, which I favor in music, and I think he does too. And since we started working together, we've just been, it's just been on, you know. It just goes on its own. It's really nice. Now, you mentioned before we started to roll that Josh had actually worked with Katie Lang. And does that actually work well in this industry where one individual introduces you to another individual or is this just kind of a, a coincidence? I, I don't know. I mean, it's a small world, the music business, you know. There's a lot of people playing music, but you, you find out quickly people that are within your realm. You know, you, you find out who, who are the ones that you're going to collaborate with well and the connections happen. Uh, Josh and I just had a certain chemistry from the moment we met. Now, you've built your own studio, correct? And you've actually self-published this album. That's right. I have, I have independently released all of my records. And Josh and I designed the studio on a napkin and saw it erected before our eyes and couldn't believe it. And uh, we made Resistor there at Resistor Studio. The album was named after the studio in Nashville, Tennessee, right by Music Row, which is where all of the big publishers and labels and such are. Now, why have you chosen this approach as opposed to working with a record label? It's a strange time to be in the music business. People aren't really buying records anymore, and that's how you make money in the music business, uh, that and touring. And I have struggled, like all musicians do, to get to the point that I'm currently at. And we've had the option, but I feel like at this point, you know, you don't get any, there's nothing for free in life. If someone's going to give you a bunch of money to make records, then you have to answer to them creatively and otherwise. And, you know, we've, we've struggled for this long. Let's just keep on going. It's getting easier, slowly but surely. So would it be true to say that you're investing in yourselves then? Absolutely. I guess that would suggest that you have a lot of faith in your talents. <laughs> that is a daily struggle. <laughs> I mean, I think every day is like, I'm great, I'm horrible, what am I doing? No, I'm really good, so I have a chance. No, why are you doing this? You should quit. I think that's normal, you know, that's kind of the artistic mentality, the, the struggle that you go through. I have faith because I see the reactions of the fans. I see a little bit of growth every week or every month or every show or every tour, you know, and that's what keeps me thinking, I can do this on my own. I don't have to answer to anyone else so that I can get their money. Well, Lara, you know, the title of this podcast is Monetizing Your Creativity. So what are your thoughts for younger people who are interested in getting into music as a career. Is this something that's really achievable? Yeah, absolutely. Just being here at the Edmonton Folk Festival and watching the audience's response to the other artists that are playing, music is so powerful and people need it, you know? They love it, they need it, it moves them. For a lot of people in this world, it's, it's their favorite thing, you know? Absolutely, you can have a career in music. I think it's just important that you don't depend on anyone else to create or promote your career for you. And even more important is that you make art that's true to you. Don't make art that you think is going to make money because that's when your art starts to fail or suffer. So it's like make the art that you're proud of and the money will follow? Make the art that resonates with you and the money will follow, hopefully. <laughs> well, fantastic. Thanks for joining us today. 
Thank you so much for having me. True to you. Just continue to make art that's true to you and that resonates with you and don't depend on anyone else. Wise words from a strong and successful woman. And I found it interesting that even though Lyra has never needed to use it, she had a plan B, a broader education, and ended up appreciating the experience of having that education as part of her journey. Well, Marv, I think all of us, artists and others, need to be aware of the potential restrictions we may put upon ourselves. Just because baseball is your passion doesn't mean you can't enjoy hiking or skiing or football. There may be all sorts of transfers of skills that you'd never discover if you didn't occasionally participate in a sport or a creative activity other than your main passion. Right now, my passion is getting on to preparing our next episode. So a big thank you to our listeners. That's all the time we have for now. Please join us next week for another episode of Monetizing Your Creativity. Say bye, Fred. Bye, Fred. Is that what you had in mind? Just bye, Fred. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for tuning in to Monetizing Your Creativity. Be sure to join us next time by subscribing to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave a review. It helps us with our ratings. You can also visit monetizingyourcreativity.com for more information about the show. And hey, be sure to tell your friends who want to understand how to monetize their creativity.